From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Horror movies have changed through the years, but there's one thing you can count on. Screams. Throw your arms across your eyes and scream, man. Scream for your life! We collected those shrieks from Fay Ray and King Kong, Meryl Streep in Big Little Lies, Jamie Lee Curtis in Halloween, Janet Lee in Psycho, and producer Amelia Brock expressing <laughs> primal fear in the GPB studio. Why do we scream? How does it serve us and other species as we've evolved? Well, these are some of the questions guiding psychologist Harold Gazoulis and students at Emory's Bioacoustics Lab, which he runs, and he's here to tell us more using your inside voice, please. <laughs> I'll do my best. <laughs> Welcome. Glad to have you here. And your background is in animal behavior. And before you got to humans, you were looking into basic animal screams. How widespread is screaming in animals? Yes, that's right. We, we Our interest in screams began when my wife Sarah and I were postdocs at the Rockefeller University. And a big question at the time was whether or not animals had the capacity to communicate about things in their external worlds. Mm -hmm. Going back to Darwin... The idea was that animals communicated about their emotions, but that was it. But with respect to the evolution of language, the issue of external reference is important. We have the capacity, of course, to communicate about things in our external worlds. And to what extent do animals have that capacity? So oddly enough, we looked at screams in monkeys because screams are used to recruit support in fights. Clearly to us, something was being communicated, something quite specific about the fight and the seriousness of the situation. So it suggested that screams were communicating something very clear to allies in the social group. Now, with respect to how widespread screams are, they are indeed almost universal across species. Birds scream, various species of mammals scream, even those that don't have very elaborate vocal repertoires, like rabbits. If you look at YouTube and search for rabbit screams, you'll probably laugh at the outcome because it sounds so human. And the same is true with goat screams. So these are vocalizations that are conserved evolutionarily. In other words, they haven't changed very much. Even some frogs will scream. And why they are widespread? They probably had their origins with respect to escape from predation. Mm -hmm. Predator has a victim in its jaws and it's doomsday, but a loud sudden vocalization that potentially startles that predator Gives Might drop that it from their mouth? Absolutely right. All right, we're going to save people a Google search and hear some screams from here is a rabbit. A goat. And finally, a frog. <laughs> Isn't that remarkable? Oh my goodness, but it is kind of horrifying. I mean, if, it, if the effect is to get somebody to <laughs> be startled, it's working on me. Absolutely. They're sudden and loud and piercing. But it also raises the hairs on the back of my neck. I mean, I hear pain. Is it a cry for help as well? Well, it comes to be. Nobody's going to help a frog. A frog isn't going to help another frog. And the same is true for rabbits. You know, it's every every rabbit for himself. But how about herself. a monkey? But a monkey, 
monkeys are very social and they have um, alliances that are mostly kin-based, relative-based. And the acquisition and maintenance of dominance in the social group is dependent upon these alliances and the ability to recruit. So screams have come to serve in a more elaborate way. They, they will indicate when there's a severe threat or when some, somebody from lower in the hierarchy is challenging. So they use different screams to communicate. But the interesting thing is that these screams all concern fights. Now, with humans, it gets more interesting. Okay, because, let's hear. Well, with humans, as you, everybody knows, but probably hasn't thought about it too much, but we scream not only for pain and fear, but in aggression and ex in excitement. Mm -hmm. And some people have startle screams. You see a cockroach, or you see a mouse, and a, a scream will come out. So we use screams in a more, in a wider range of situations, contexts, and emotional states, which makes it really interesting. It's kind of like laughter, where some non-humans will laugh too. You tickle a chimpanzee and it'll give its version of a laugh. Mm -hmm. oh, 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 oh. But that's all they do in terms of laughter. And we, we humans, have laughter that is fake or derisive or... So we are able to use nonverbal communication in more elaborate ways than animals do. And I think that has to do with language. Our language, the fact that we have language, gives us the ability to, to use non-linguistic vocalizations in a more elaborate way than animals are capable than of. Than just the one scream. Exactly. I'm speaking with Emory psychologist Harold Gazoulas. His research at the Bioacoustics Lab uncovers the intricacies of the human scream, and we brought him here <laughs> to scream it from the rooftops. Well, let's do that. Let's put my ears to the scream test, and you can, you can play along at home. Uh, so what are we trying to identify here? We're going to hear a couple different screams and see what kind of screams they are. Sounds, sounds good to okay. me. <laughs> You're going to go with that. Here's the first one. Okay, what do you think? Terror, fear, oh my, something something startled, it sounds like to me? Not quite. Okay, what? That, that's excitement. Oh, really? That's actually <laughs> a, about an 11-year-old girl opening a present, and it's so exciting. And yes, she is so full of excitement that that's what comes out of her mouth. Okay, well, clearly I don't belong in your bioacoustics lab yet. Let's hear, hear the next one. Okay, how about that? Uh, that that definitely sounds scared, like something Absolutely. terrified. That's a, a, intense fear. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, next. <laughs> <laughs> it's not joy. No. As a matter of fact, it's not even a scream, although it mimics a scream in terms of some of the acoustical features. That's, what, just, that's a whistle. Well, is it? That's okay. a whistle. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we, we threw in some non-scream sounds to present to our participants in our in our studies just to see exactly how they map this concept of scream and again certain sounds can mimic a scream so that that whistle is high pitched it's about the same duration as a scream it's got the same kind of um, pitch changes and so most people think oh that's a scream they probably think it's a child because it's so high pitched I wanted to ask you, do, I mean, children, you see, we've all witnessed children having a fit, right? 
I would assume that that scream is because it's a lack of language, a lack of ability to communicate what's wrong with them. Is that correct? Well, they scream not only when there's something wrong with them, but, very but happy, just for ecstatic. the joy mm-hmm. of screaming. I mean, my, my speculation is that even ancestral children in our evolutionary past screamed in this way. And it's a way to get a parent familiar with the scream of their own children. Uh-huh. So they so, could they could pick it out in a crowd if they heard their own kids screaming. That's my suspicion, yes. Well, well, tell me more about that because that's part of your research. It's not just the nature of the scream, but who is actually screaming and the identification. So how how is that revealing something about the way that we communicate with each other or react to each other in a social way? Well, screams are important. They get attention. No matter what the context, Mm -hmm. screams are attention-getting. And another fascinating area, think about in my day when I was a teenager, the Beatles Mm -hmm. arrive. Yes. Yes, the the screaming girls. Right. And before that, it was um, Elvis Presley, I guess, and Frank Sinatra before that. And then more recently, somebody like One Direction. I don't know who the current boy band is, but I'm sure it's generating all kinds of screams at, at concerts. And yet, if you look at somebody like Katy Perry, you know, talented, attractive, but the boys and the young men, they're not screaming in that same way. Uh So there's some gender differences that are really interesting as well. Well, I wondered about that. Is that learned behavior or instinctive behavior? You know, like why? I mean, I have been that person who sees a mouse and maybe not blood-curdling scream, but definitely expresses surprise. I know. I know. Um... Pure speculation, that's that's a tough thing to try to figure out. And we haven't done the cross-cultural comparisons that would be necessary. My suspicion is that these are indeed innate human capacities and differences. But that's that's pure speculation at this point. Well, why are we, you know, why do we go see horror films? Why do we go to the Beatles show and scream? I mean, what kind of release is happening in us? Well, again, it's... Um, roller coasters and haunted houses, and people pay good money to go get themselves scared to death Uh and scream. There was a study a few years ago where the researchers asked individuals on a roller coaster not to scream, and it was so much less fun. (laughs) There's there's a a release, if you will, that comes from screaming, and that's probably ancillary. It's probably additional to any kind of function that screams had. But there's that emotional release as well. Now, what does that do? Screaming, if, if you've got that emotional release, maybe it gives you greater flexibility in terms of dealing with the danger. Uh, again, uh-huh. nobody's – these are tough questions to explore. Right, but that could be the adaptive response, right? You know, we, there's not a predator coming to kill us at that moment, but screaming is some way of connecting to something, some other primal emotion. Absolutely. Uh-huh. Okay, so you've you've studied a lot of screams, and you have people come into your lab, civilians like me, who may not necessarily be good at distinguishing screams. What do you do? Do you play sample screams? We do. We have a library of screams that we've collected <laughs> over the years, and that, a lot of them come from the Internet, um, but also TV and movies mm-hmm. and um, screams from different contexts. And so just as I'm sitting here with headphones on, the participants will sit down and hear a, 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 a bank of screams, and then they answer questions on a computer screen that gives us information. And they also fill out questionnaires about empathy and emotional processing 
and their experience with things like video games. Mm -hmm. And so we try to get a sense of what their backgrounds are as well. And do males differ from females in terms of their ability to discriminate one kind of scream from another? And the answer is yes, but then again, females have a slight advantage in terms of emotional processing in general. Mm -hmm. There's literature that indicates that. And perhaps pitch. There's that. There's that, yeah. Do you have any favorite screams, you know, Hollywood screams or otherwise? Well, my favorite, and it dates back to when I was just a child and, and you played it. It's Fay Ray's classic scream. You know, they referred to those actresses as scream queens. Yeah. And Jamie Lee Curtis, I guess, was a more recent And her mother, generation. Janet Lee. Janet Lee, of course. That's right. So, yeah, I, I would have to say if I have to choose one scream, it's that classic Fay Ray on the ship as they're approaching King Kong's Island and and uh, she's asked to imagine something horrifying and she belts out that scream, which again, it's probably my favorite. Let's hear it again for good measure as we thank you so much, Harold Gazoulis. He's a psychologist and runs Emory's Bioacoustics Lab. Thank you so much for speaking with us. My great pleasure. Throw your arms across your eyes and scream and scream for your life. <laughs> So what is your favorite most blood-curdling scream? Drew Barrymore in Scream? Shelley Duvall in The Shining? Whoever that lady is in the bathtub at Nightmare in Elm Street? Let us know on our Facebook group, GPB Radio's On Second Thought, or give us a shout, couldn't resist, on Twitter at OST Talk. We're going to head into the break with an internet throwback. Taylor Swift, I knew you were trouble with backup vocals from a few screaming goats. We're back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. Adulting is a term used to describe grown-up behaviors, anything from doing laundry to signing a lease. Like many things millennial, the backlash to this made-up word was simultaneous with its swift rise as a hashtag on social media. That's just the kind of behavioral paradox Matt Gorin and Danny Kofke love to talk about on Nothing Funny About Money. That's a lighthearted show about personal finance produced and broadcast at WUGA in Athens. We asked Matt and Danny to share part of their show on financial adulting. Danny starts off with his definition. To me, being an adult means paying bills. Gosh, you got to pay to have the TV on? You got to pay to have the lights on? So I think, hey, I'm an adult now. When I grow up, I want to pay bills. <laughs> Absolutely. Don't we all? Stay in college as long as you can. Well, once you do finally become an adult, you'll realize that the 20s are a critical time, not just for paying bills, but for a lot of other stuff. We talked about on the investing episode, the earlier you start saving, the better off you are. The magic of compound interest, just having that time on your side to just do it as early as possible. You want to buy a home in your 30s, you don't start saving in your 30s, you start saving even younger. And those kinds of saving and investing behaviors, they're started with setting good habits as soon as you start living on your own. Yes. When I was in my 20s, saving up, buying that first home, putting down a good down payment, here we are now, 42 years old, we're mortgage-free. But to get that bright future, you have to combat the horrible reality of lifestyle creep. <laughs> and this sounds maybe like a villain from some 50s B-movie. <laughs> lifestyle creep is when you see your income going up a lot and you think to yourself, hey, 
my expenses can go up too. And what happens, your expenses start going up maybe even faster than your income. I know with a lot of people that start making $150,000, $200,000 a year, they start jumping into $600,000, $700,000 homes, and that lifestyle creep, once you do that, then everything else. So, you know, if I'm living in this neighborhood, i got to send my kids to this school, and I may have, it's not the public school. i got to pay for the private school. Yeah. Oh, the other neighbors, they have tennis lessons. we got to have those, too. So it just starts creeping up. It's intense. You feel judged by everyone. And these little cul-de-sac neighborhoods... People can look right into your driveway and see what you're rocking or not. What do you do? How do you manage that pressure? And if you are like the typical recent graduate, you're not only dealing with that pressure, you're also dealing with student loan debt. For someone with a bachelor's degree, the average is now $40,000. That debt can mean a failure to launch, where your financial adult life takes an extra decade to get going. You might want to knock that debt out as soon as possible. How? For some answers, we turn to Zena Kumak. She's a financial writer who got her start paying off $24,000 in debt in just three years. 24000 so that was about average for that year. It was, yeah, yeah. I've always been average. <laughs> okay. So you, the average person with the average amount of debt and the perfectly average life, but then you did something that wasn't very average. Yeah, I just really, really hated the feeling of being in debt. It felt like this physical anchor that was just dragging me back. Every time I went to spend money, I just thought, well, my money is already accounted for. Like, government owes all my money. Sure, really so it's, it's not that you're response. going from, like, $1,000 in your checking account to 990 It's, I'm going from negative 24000 yes. <laughs> That's exhausting. And there are a lot of studies about, you know, the anxiety and depression that you get when you have loans and debt. So I just really wanted to pay them off quickly. And I remember I, through my budget, because I wasn't making that much, I was earning about $28,000 a year uh, working as a newspaper reporter. So I called my student loan provider and I said, okay, I can put an extra $10 a month. What is that going to do? And she ran the numbers and told me that it would actually take off one year off my 10-year term. So I'd go from paying it off in 10 years to paying it off in nine years. Right. So even something that small could make a year difference. Yeah. Which is, to me, that blew my mind. And I think if it wasn't for that, I wouldn't have been so motivated Mm -hmm. because that made me think, man, $10, like you can spend $10 in like five minutes, you know, go out to lunch or buy a movie. So that got me thinking of, what if I can find 20 or 50 or, you know, even 100? So how much did you ultimately decide you're going to try to pay down every month? That first year, I think I mostly only paid $10 extra. However, I also decided that any time I had extra money coming in, whether it was a birthday check from grandma mm-hmm. or a tax refund or, um, you know, like a random rebate or something, I would try to put the majority of that toward my loans. And, you know... We also don't really keep track of those. It just disappears. So if it's going to disappear anyway, why not put it towards something like paying off your student loan debt? Yeah, and you really have to make that commitment beforehand. And I I would always take a portion of it for myself and buy myself something I really wanted. And that always felt good because it felt like, okay, I'm being responsible, but I'm also getting something that I've been pining after for months. The same time you're doing the financially responsible thing, your quality of life is also increasing from where you were before. Yes. So you're better off in every single way. Yes. Right on. So then <laughs> this goes on 
what, a, a few months, a year, and what do you see happening to student loan balance? Is it actually coming down as quickly as you wanted it to? You know, definitely not as quickly. That first year is very frustrating. I spent a year at that job, and then I moved to the city where my boyfriend was living, to Indianapolis. Okay. And suddenly I wasn't driving, like, every weekend to see him. And this is back when gas was $4 a gallon. And so I got a little bit of a raise, and then I was saving on gas and, like, a few other things. And suddenly I had significantly extra. So at that point I started paying another, like, three to 400 extra a month consistently. So really ratcheted that up. Before, you're finding this found money and trying to accelerate payments, but then it was the ongoing increase in income and the ongoing decrease in cost. The every single day, you've got a surplus you didn't have before. That's when you turn yes. the corner. It's funny because I remember someone at work asked, are you looking at a new car? And I was like, nope. Or, you know, I remember people, like one time my boss was, he would always want to go out to eat. And I, of course, never wanted to go out to eat. And he said, well, don't you have any fun? And I never said this to him, but I said, well, you know, I was like budgeting for entertainment, you know, fun sure, things. But sure. I was like, fun is not hanging out with your coworkers at some <laughs> crappy restaurant for an hour. Like, you know, I'd rather go take my leftovers and like read for an hour in the break room. Wow. No, I really, I really enjoyed my coworkers, but I thought, well. That's not worth it. Like that right, $10 right. can buy me something oh, I really want. Yeah, so you're being very intentional with your money, and you still had that sense of, I'm, I don't have 2000 in the bank or whatever. It's I have negative, maybe at that point, $15,000. Yes. So that yeah. you couldn't escape that. You still couldn't escape that feeling. You're listening to Matt Gorin and Danny Kofke, hosts of WUJ's Nothing Funny About Money. We asked them to share their thoughts on financial adulting with On Second Thought. Danny, what are your thoughts so far? First off, it amazed me that when she started off, she was making $28,000 a year. I mean, that's nothing. And she was still able to start tackling that debt by applying an extra $10 a month, and it's going to take an entire year off her student loan debt. Yeah. And what's that, 30 cents a day? It's so incredible. If you can't find 30 cents in a day, then I don't Loosen know. Loosen up the budget a little. Yes. Avoiding lifestyle creep doesn't mean avoiding an interesting, fun life. It means avoiding high fixed expenses like pricey homes and luxury cars. Whose car is pulling up in Jerry's driveway? Wait, is that Jerry? Did Jerry just buy another car? Hey, Jerry. Hey, Tom. How you like the new ride? Yeah, is that a Tesla? Oh yeah, brand new. Wow, got bored with the BMW already, huh? What? What's that? Well, you sold the BMW and bought a Tesla. Oh, oh no, I still have the BMW. It's in the garage. Yeah, that's more of a winter car. And then I have the Audi for long-range driving and the Mini Cooper for mountains. I had no idea your garage was that big. Jerry, don't take this the wrong way. But do you really need all those cars? Ah, uh, there goes Frugal Tom again. Nah, I think this is almost enough. Marcus across the street thinks he's hot stuff with his third Range Rover, so I had to show him what we're all about. Three Range Rovers? Odd-numbered addresses all the way, right, bro? Sure. Anyway, gotta run. Meeting with a loan officer about my second, second mortgage. Something about garnishing my wages, whatever, whatever that means. Garnishes for salads.
I don't even have one Range Rover. We're back. On this month's episode, we're talking about lifestyle creep. Let's return to part two of our interview with Zena Kumak. We're in the middle of your second year out mm -hmm. of college. You're trying to pay this off. And were you just staying at the extra, say, $300 a month? Was the, How long did you maintain this phase? I think it might have been like an extra, I want to say closer to $400. Mm -hmm. And then what really changed for me about after a year I got this new job, I also moved in with my boyfriend and a mutual friend of ours. Mm -hmm. Prior to this, I had been living alone, which, right, you know, right. living alone is vastly more expensive than having roommates. So suddenly I went from paying 625 just in rent, not counting, you know, utilities and internet and things like that, sure. to having two roommates. And our rent was 266 a month. Wow. So of course I took that difference. And suddenly I was basically putting half of my income toward my loans. I'm ballparking here, but this is now about maybe $900, a $1,000 a yeah. month. Yeah, I think it was like 900 950 And this is all the same idea before of increase the income, decrease the fixed expenses, and this found money. But you're still hanging out with the boyfriend. You're still doing fun stuff. And the debt is just cratering. It's going away really rapidly. Plus, when you get up to that point, you're paying so much less in interest. Right. So the principal is really decreasing rapidly. I mean, it, it really is like such a rush, such a high feeling. <laughs> sure. All right. It feels good to get out of debt. How long then did this take before you were totally done? The debt's gone. So it really took three years from my first student loan payment in November 2011. So in November 2014, I was debt free. And almost all of that getting out of debt happened really in this year and a half period. So somebody tells you, you have 10 years to pay this thing off. You did it seven years ahead of schedule. No. Yeah. Sometimes I, uh, I think of like, oh, like, okay, I'm 29 now and I would still have it. Yeah, sure. And I've been debt free for three years now. And you'd still have it for even more years. You'd be into your, yeah. your early thirties before it finally went away. So now what is it like not having any debt? How does that feel? My husband and I are probably going to buy a house next year. Oh, congrats. And you said husband, so the boyfriend turned into a husband. Yes, yes, Congratulations on that, too. Thank you. <laughs> right, good. And I'm glad it's the same one. That would have been awkward. <laughs> but then, yeah, go on. So my husband and I, were both self-employed, which if you know anything about buying a mortgage when you're self-employed, it is much more difficult than when you're traditionally employed. So I was talking to a friend of mine who's a mortgage advisor, and I was telling him you know, how worried I was that it was going to be this incredible hassle from the bank. And he goes, well, what's your debt-to-income ratio? How much are your debt payments compared to your income? And that feeling of being able to say, oh, well, I don't, I don't have any other debt, that right. was so nice. And I thought, well, at least this one thing I don't have that maybe other people have. Like, I don't right, have right. student loans or a car payment or anything else. Well, if you're looking for more help understanding how to get out of the situation, talk to Zena, ConsciousCoins.com. Zena, thanks again so much for being on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Prioritizing savings when you're in your 20s can be really, really difficult. So to help that, we have some ideas for you just to get started. 
one of the big finance tips is just to know where your money's actually going. I mean, that is a given, but yet so many people do not do it. And I will say, out of the two of us, I'm the elder statesman here that have I've lived a little bit longer than my co-host. Um, this is true. Yes, yes. But I will say, when we got married, the first month, we wrote down everything we spent for a month. And then at the end of the month, we were able to analyze it. You and I can both give general tips. Don't go to Starbucks. Don't go to the movies, whatever it may be. But that doesn't apply to everyone. When you write down what you've bought, the numbers don't lie. You personalize it, and then you're able to analyze your budget and say, okay, we can eliminate this. We can eliminate that. And then we took it a step further, and then we used cash only for the entertainment, for eating out, and then that time our groceries, because it's a lot harder to part with the green stuff for most of us sure. than it is to swipe a piece oh, of plastic. Oh, you can feel it. You can really feel it. Somebody is going to take that dollar bill that you have in your hand, it's like part of you is getting torn from your body. That little dollar is gone forever. Yes. George, they, come back, come back. <laughs> they hand you back the credit card. You don't lose the credit card, but the cash does go away. So if that helps, hey, go for it. Just keeping a budget, as Danny said, for a month, try to hang with it for three months. You'll find so many invisible expenses become visible. Starbucks is a great example of that. You don't feel that individual Starbucks until you add them all up for three months, I didn't realize I spent $500 on coffee-flavored sugar milk. If you're not keeping track of it and you don't know where it's going, it's easy to let it go. And how about the new car? What a lot of people don't understand is you're not just paying for the car. If you have the loan, you're, of course, also paying interest and registration and gas and insurance and deferred maintenance. And all of those expenses might not be obvious. Another big practical tip is start budgeting for that new car. Pretend like you just bought it and then see how does that affect your budget? Can you afford that $500 just for the car payment, the new insurance bill and everything else? Do that now before you're locked into the new car. And if you find it's too much, you can't afford things, well, good that it was just on paper. Take it a little further. When you do have a car, if you have a car payment, continue paying yourself that payment even when the car's paid off. You keep a car 10 years, and let's say five of the years you've been paying yourself a car payment, well, you're going to have this chunk of change sitting right there, a lot more than change, and you'll be able to go buy another car, hopefully outright, if not outright, for a lot less than what it's going for. And this brings us to another big tip, is the pay yourself first. When you are making these automatic payments, like Danny's saying, do it at the first of the month. Before you spend any money anywhere else, that automatic payment goes into savings, goes into investing. You don't feel it because you never saw it in the first place. It's put aside, and then if you blow everything else, guess what? You've still made a smart financial decision because you have money set aside. That was Matt Gorin there. You also heard from Danny Kofke, host of Nothing Funny About Money. That's heard on WUGA. We asked them to share a part of their episode on financial adulting with On Second Thought. Coming up, a summer program takes to the sky. Hear about a camp that puts aviation careers and a more diverse workforce on the same flight plan. I'm Virginia Prescott. Stay with us for that and more of On Second Thought. We're back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. Flight to the crew of Cincinnati, Atlanta, New York. None of the passengers slept aboard Delta's recent 6 a.m. flight from Atlanta to Pensacola. In fact, they pretty much talked nonstop until landing at Eglin Air Force Base, one step closer to their dream career. 
the 20th annual Dream Flight is part of the Aviation Career Education Academy. It's a summer program for 14 to 18-year-olds and part of the airline's initiative to promote diversity across aviation. It's run in partnership with the Organization of Black Aerospace Professionals. On Second Thought intern Jessica Lowell climbed on board with the group and traveled to the National Navy Aviation Museum. First officer Welland would be flying the aircraft. He was actually a dream flighter 18 years ago. Once on the ground, flight captain Guy Stallworth told Jessica about his co-pilot, Jerome Wellens, who earned his wings with the program's help. From a very young age, I wanted to be a pilot. And, and the problem with a lot of kids who don't have direct exposure to careers in aviation is that they want to be pilots or flight attendants or uh, mechanics or dispatchers, but they really don't have a roadmap uh, to get to where they want to be. So almost two decades ago, uh, my first officer today was just a teenager in my class, and to see him now as a professional pilot, and, and he flew the aircraft here today. Uh, yeah, it's kind of like everything has come full circle. I met Guy in 2001 when I attended the ACE camp back then. Guy's been, he's been incredible, just um, played a huge role in, in me just solidifying that this is a career that I wanted to pursue. And this morning was the first time that we had a chance to fly together. It is a true honor and pleasure to, to fly with someone who has been your friend and your mentor. Jerome went from mentee to colleague to a mentor to teens like Tyler Sims. I am an incoming freshman going to Auburn University, and I plan on studying professional flight. So I was a former student in the program, and now I'm just coming back, and I'm part of the outlook for where this program can actually go. But he's really been helping me out and basically getting me to understand how the aviation industry looks from a pilot's perspective. My name is Kayla Sloan. So I aspire to be a Delta pilot and just fly internationally. I'm in women's in aviation, and we've gone to a couple conferences, and I've definitely seen like an increase in women in the uh, workforce, and I'd definitely like to follow trends with that. My name is Roman White. I am from Covington, Louisiana, and I'm 14 years old. What I want to be when I grow up is in the aviation business. I want to be a world-famous test pilot for NASA and fly the planes from the United States Air Force. You know, build a huge reputation and legacy in that, and I love to fly planes a lot. But it's something about big planes that really make me, like, you know, get excited and geeky about it. To take off is just my favorite part of every flight. Just the speed and just, so that's just my favorite part of it. Delta's Dream Flight program is not just for future pilots, but for people aspiring to a number of jobs in aviation. But chances are good that Kayla or Roman will be telling you to sit back and enjoy your flight one day. Well, ladies and gentlemen, it is our pleasure to welcome you back to the Atlanta International Airport. Everyone, please remain seated. Well, here on the ground, theatrical productions with more than one act can run anywhere from 90 minutes to about three hours. One famous, might, some might say infamous, adaptation of The Great Gatsby lasted a whopping eight hours. Now that's a commitment from cast and crew and audience. What if you could see a number of plays in less time? The annual Atlanta One Minute Play Festival brings brevity to the boards, and it showcases full productions rehearsed and performed by actors at Actors Express. 
July 28th and 29th. Dominic D'Andrea is founder and curator of the One Minute Play Festival and joins me in the studio. Hello. Hi. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for being here. Also with us, Patrick Morgan, one of the featured playwrights and an actor. Good morning. Good morning. And the play that is one minute long. How do you come up with the idea for a festival like that, Dominic? Well, it's asking the community to consider the world around them. So we think of the One Minute Play Festival as sort of a container for ideas in a community. And so we consider the performance kind of a core sample or cross-section of like looking what's in the dirt through these uh, 60 pulses of storytelling. So it's our way of kind of performing a community mind map or asking the community, who are we? What is our relationship to each other, to our work, to our civic life? Um, And then the back end, looking at all this work that we're generating and all the threads of narratives and ideas that bubble up to the surface. And we're asking, what did we see? What did we hear? What did we learn? So pulsing and sifting, very different than uh, this is a response to the Twitterverse or, you know, people don't have attention span, so we can only do one minute. No, yeah, it has actually nothing to do with attention span. It's actually asking your audience to tune into what the bigger ideas are. What are the narratives and things that are sort of abundant and what does that say? So to actually look at the bigger picture of what this work says, it's about, it's it's really a, a big opportunity to tune in to the world around us. So this year it's 60 plays by 60 different Atlanta playwrights and yeah. you are one of them, Patrick. I am. Okay, um, so what are the challenges of communicating character and plot and, and pulling people in in that uh, short amount of time? It's a bit hard to try and cram all that into a minute, but what that ends up doing is making the story very compact and very powerful. So you have to get to the essence of the story and try and communicate that very clearly within the one minute. And usually what comes out is pretty amazing. Has it changed the way that you approach other plays that you write? It has, actually. It's made my writing a lot more succinct and um, just more compact and able to to communicate my story more effectively. Yeah. And Dominic, how do you go about staging 60 different plays over such a short period of time? That's a great question. We do it with the most basic elements. So all of the plays are staged with four chairs, lights up, lights down. And there's a there's a, what we call a blink out between every play, which helps respect each play as an individual and complete work. Mm-hmm. To draw to a close. Yeah, and also it aids with this aesthetic of heartbeats or pulses. Mm. Um, and so we ask people to focus on story and ideas. And when we think of like a, what one minute play is, it's like a little frame. And when you look through the frame, it suggests a world that's much wider. And we look through 60 of them. That's like a big world, right? So we ask people to work with the most basic elements and only include exactly what is necessary to tell the story. So people and ideas, not stuff in things. No hydraulics. No hydraulics. <laughs> but, but then to connect them together, is there an organizing principle? Uh, yeah, it's just we. I move them. So part of the tech process tomorrow is we ask everybody to stage these plays, the blink out between, and I and I actually uh, collaborate with the actors and the directors, and I and I sort of piece them together so it moves. So it's sort of like a, a flow that is continuous for an hour. Patrick, I'm curious about what the draw is to doing a challenge like this. It's the sense of community. Like, it's very collaborative from the moment you write it. And Dominic in the One Minute Play Fest is asking you to think about the community in large and what issues are speaking out about the community. And then going into the rehearsal process and meeting with the directors and the actors and communicating and collaborating with them on how to bring this play about to the actual performance with the audience and bringing them in and asking what they thought about it. So does the audience respond in real time? We 
invite the audience to respond afterwards. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. So when it comes to art of any kind, there are strict guidelines like this for an entire play in one minute, that can be seen as liberating or limiting, or limiting rather. What's what's it like for you? For me, it's liberating because you don't have to worry about, am I going to go on too long? Like you have a hard out at one minute. And so it it really does force you to choose your words and your actions carefully and what's the essential elements for telling that story. Well, we have two more guests with us for a live production of one of the plays. I mean, we've got a minute, right? (laughs) (laughs) So we have two actors from the festival. Brian Ashton Smith is with us. Hello. Hello. How are you? All right. Thank you. And Jasmine Waters, thank you for being here. Of course. Love being here. All right. So they're going to perform a play written by Natasha Patel called How the Candles Flamed Out. But first, a little bit about like when you first learn about a play like this, how do you approach it? Okay, so uh, when you first learn about a play like this, I mean, I guess the first step is to to read it through, make sure that you understand what's happening. Uh, Because some of these plays can be a little abstract, so you want to get to, like, what the heart of the playwright's trying to convey. Um, And uh, I've I've directed the One Minute Play Festival, actually, uh, last year. I was one of the directors for it. And um, I I just kind of, like, take a very communal approach where we all sit around and we we discuss the play and discuss the themes and motives of it and, like, whatever comes out from anyone. And we kind of, like, develop the play from around, from from that. Um, But, yeah, you do what you can to to respect the artist's work and, um, and we collaborate to create something new from there. Jasmine, how do you decide who does which plays? Um, well, luckily, I have never had to make such a decision because I have not directed. Um, I'm a writer and an actor for One Minute Play. Um, but with the directors that I've worked with, we sit around, we do table reads. And from there, people are able to say what roles they connect most with and what roles they want. Um, and then we kind of just piece it together, similar to how Dominic works with the process, um, who fits where and how we can make those transitions really smooth. Okay, so you're gonna guys are gonna do this play for us here. This is called How the Candles Flamed Out. Am I supposed to say action? <laughs> How do you do this? You you guys are directors, not I. I just say take it away. <laughs> How the Candles Flamed Out by Natasha Patel. We are the last to be lit. Please reconsider your actions. For a generation, we've been every thought and prayer for your tremendous loss. A roof whipped by a tornado, a bedroom flooded from a hurricane. We comforted you. Even when things grew more grim, reckless drivers, opioid pushers, five-year-olds at the whim of an armed madman, we stuck by you while you grieved. Honey, baby darling, we were all you needed. But then your children wanted more, and you listened to your children. Who does that? You marched, you slept before building entrances. Your craziness has brought about our end. Our flames are nearly extinguished. So we leave you with this final thought. We pray that one day we will be enough again. Thank you. The audience goes wild. (laughs) That was Brian Ashton Smith and Jasmine Waters and Patrick Morgan performing a one-minute play, this one from Natasha Patel called How the Candles Flamed Out. They are all part of the One Minute Theater Festival. Dominic Dundrea is founder and curator of the festival. And this is going on now. It's on July 28th and 29th. You can see for yourself, this is this is typical of what you do, right? That one of the, they just move forward from one to the next to the next. How much time does it take to rehearse a short play like that? About an hour per play. <laughs> an hour per play yeah. to get get things right. And then another hour for the transition. So we, we usually say it's about a 10, if there's eight or nine plays, it's a 10 to 12 hour process before tech for the actors. 
So uh, what is it like for you as actors comparing to actor for acting in a much longer performance? Are there benefits or drawbacks for you, Jasmine? Um, I think it's it's benefits. I have been in plenty of productions, as uh, Patrick was mentioning, that feel long and drawn out and it feels like the words aren't as important. But to convey what a writer meant and to convey their message within such a short amount of time and to get that to an audience, I think, becomes really important and really powerful um, and very challenging. Uh, so it definitely tries me as an actor to be able to create a story in such a short amount of time. And for you, Brian and Patrick, you're doing more than one of these, right? There are 50 actors in the troupe. Yeah, so uh, yeah. sixty plays. Obviously, you're you're spreading this around. How does that? How what is that like going from one to the next to the next? Or do you try and space them out? No, there there's not really any spacing out of it. Is it's um, each the, the it's organized in clumps. So we've got a couple different clumps, and each of them has a certain amount of plays. So each each one um, each clump will kind of create their own uh, cohesive unit. And um, then Dominic on the day of tech will um, piece these clumps together and we will have one whole big cohesive unit. So we kind of it's like a very much a divide and conquer scenario. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we try to we try to be asset based in the approach. So it's not focusing on limitations, but on focusing on space and focusing on people. And what we're really doing is investing in people to set them up for success. Mm -hmm. So providing them very clear guidelines, a very clear platform, very clear tasks, whether they're a professional actor who's had 30 years of experience, whether they're a community member. Sometimes we have civic workers, teachers, or mailmen, people that opt into the process for the first time. They've never been on stage. So we're not making a distinction between a professional actor and a community actor. So focusing on simple tasks, hitting your marks, um, speaking up making sure the plays are in time bounds, making sure that um, everything kind of lands where it needs to be. Um, those kinds of actions and steps allow people to feel like they're doing their best work and they're creating something together. Yeah, and communicate something to the audience, right. I'm sure, part of that communal feel that you were talking about. Yeah, and that's also true with the plays. I think one of your initial questions might have been, why a minute? And I think a lot of it is about equity of voice. So if we have playwrights who are 30-year veterans who have plays all around the country, of people that are opting in from the community saying, I want to say something. And whether they're a veteran writer or a new writer, we're asking um, we're, we're providing them the same space. And if a play goes long, it actually says that this voice is more important. It's taking up more space. So um, we're giving everybody the same boundaries to say something, whether they're new or very established. I'm wondering for you, Patrick, you've written one of the, you wrote one of the plays, but you're also an actor for this year's festival. Yes. Do you prefer to act in your own play or participate in someone else's, bringing what Dominic was talking about? <laughs> I prefer to act in somebody else's. I already know what I've said, and I love to see other people bring it to life. And by the same token as an actor, I love getting to interpret along with a group of like, how are we going to express this? And just helping to bring someone else's words to life. Um, Dominic, I know you live in the New York, in New York, mm -hmm. but this is the festival's ninth year. What keeps you coming back? What is I the love, response you get? I love, love, love this town. I love the artists. I love the people. I love the theater we work with at Actors Express. Um, and you know, it's, we're going on almost a decade here. It's it's more than a tradition. Sometimes we do two festivals in a year. We do one at Christmas time um, or a holiday themed one, depending on what the year is. And it, 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 there's just such a community here. And every time I come here, if you're 
feel very welcomed and uh, invited by the community. So it, it has become a second home. Well, we're glad you're all here. Thank you so much. And right on cue, we've got Curtain Call by Atlanta local band Takanobu. As we thank Dominic D- Dundrea. So sorry, I'm stumbling no with worries. that one. Thank you, founder and curator of the annual Atlanta One Minute Play Festival, which has a two-night run beginning Sunday, July 28th at Actors Express. Patrick Morgan, also Jasmine Waters, Brian Ashton Smith. Thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having us. And props to our crew today. Today we do bid a heartfelt farewell to Sarah Shariari. She's managing editor for GPB News. Sarah was instrumental in relaunching on Second Thought, and together we traveled across the state, creating goals and systems for covering Georgia, and assembled a crack team to do it. Sarah was both leader and partner in everything, from big ideas to refining our theme music by Alex Crispin and Marshall Ruffin, by the way. So we're super grateful and lucky to have had Sarah's considerable journalism chops and enthusiasm at the heart of every conversation, every story we tell every day. We we wish her the absolute best in the unfolding story of her life. I'm Virginia Prescott. If you missed anything this week, check out the OST podcast. Tell us about your favorite screams in our Facebook group, GPB's On Second Thought. We're at OST Talk on Twitter. Have a fabulous weekend.